Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Annette Marie Lantos Tilleman Dick. And I am Nylan McBain. Nylan, we're so happy to have you here with us. And would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, my name is Nylan, and I live here in Utah, but I'm originally from New York City. And uh, I've had a varied career, mostly in marketing and nonprofit management. Um, I'm currently in the software tech entrepreneurship land, which has been a relatively new adventure for me. Um, but I like experimenting with a lot of things and, and working towards causes that I believe in. Uh, I have three daughters, one in college and two in high school, and I live in the Salt Lake Valley. Well, it's so wonderful having you here, and you are also a great lover of the scriptures, and that's another reason why we're so happy to have you here in this Thank discussion. You. Today we're going to be starting our discussion on Acts, and it is such a book of excitement. I mean, we kind of have talked about some of the amazing things. We're going to see wizards. We're going to see sorcerers. We're going to see uh, people prison running breaks, naked. Lots of prison breaks. <laughs> lots of stones. prison breaks. All kinds of exciting things that happen in Acts. But also, let's remember who wrote Acts. So Acts is written by Luke. And the other interesting thing is a two-part story. He actually wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is the second half in terms of Acts. And I think it's really interesting that he wrote this for Theo Theophilus. And Theophilus, whom we don't know much about at he all. He may not have been a real person. It means beloved of God. It may have been that Theophilus was just those of us who are beloved of God who received this, you know. But well, I am so thankful that if this was a real person, that he did commission Luke to do these wonderful writings. Because if we didn't, a lot of these stories would not be there. They're not in other places in in the writings, in the epistles, and other ways. So if we didn't have this wonderful book to help us understand this fledging Christian church that we're going to be talking about today, I think it is powerful that we have these words. The other thing that I think is interesting with the book of Acts is that it truly is an opportunity for us to see how these early Christian saints put into practice the words of the Savior. So we're going to see that, and I think in terms of my own life, as I contemplate the way they took the words of the Savior, and now that the Savior is gone, he's not physically by them, how are they going to actually put this into practice? And so for me, that's also a wonderful way of looking at Acts. How can I follow their example? What are some of the things that I can learn from what they did? So I wanted to ask you both, what are some thoughts that you've had about the book of Acts as you've been reading about Acts in terms of the apostles or practical applications that you've had as you've read this? Yeah, I'll, you start. I'll, I'll go ahead so and start. have you with us. Um, well, I think, you know, we think of, we, th we really think of the New Testament as the Gospels and then Paul, right? I mean, Paul is obviously the central character of the latter half of the New Testament, but in Acts, he doesn't show up until chapter seven. Right. And so, I, what a, one of the things that really struck me as I was preparing for our reading today, which is the, mostly the chapters before Paul shows up or Saul shows up, is Peter's role. And I just think Peter often gets overshadowed, at least 
in our perception of early Christianity, you know, Catholics are going to have a different perspective on that. But in our early per- perception of, of Christianity, we do rely so heavily, heavily on the words of Paul. But I think Peter is actually just as interesting a character sketch, because you know, at the end of the Gospels, we have him in a really disgraced position, right? And and you never really get the sense in the Gospels that he's fully grown up, that he's fully realized what's going on, right? And that he's fully moved into his full potential. And then I think at the beginning of Acts, I mean, you get first chapter of Acts, verse 15, um, in those days, Peter stood in their midst and said to the believers, uh, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke through. And he goes on here, and it's a very specific sermon. And in these first seven chapters of Acts, you see him give several very discreet, specific sermons, and they all follow the same structure, which is to identify himself as a witness of Jesus Christ and then to quote the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And, you know, I mean, you know, you know as better, better than anybody that that is a standard way of establishing That's authority, right. right, and establishing connections to prophets that have gone back. So I, I just really noticed that in my reading this time, that he does that every single time. He stands up, he introduces his authority, he quotes the Hebrew Bible, and it just seems like such a huge leap character-wise for him from where he came from at the betrayal, um, you know, during the crucifixion. I love... I. I bowed. I'm not going to say I love things. I love too much. I listen. I, I love this, and I love. It's true. I do. It's great to be but, be a lover. But <laughs> but I appreciate so much what both Mariana and you have said now, Nylon, about Peter and about Peter coming into his own and boldly declaring the word of God. I think one of the things I have learned about Acts is it's really the second. It's a two-part book. Some mm-hmm. say that it may have been one book at that Luke wrote, in fact. And maybe he did write it. Maybe somebody supported him in writing this book. It's that I hadn't thought of that, that he was a little bit funded maybe by this person, Theophilus, mm-hmm. who said, we need a record of this. Mm-hmm. You need to sit down and write it. It makes sense because, you know, they had to make a living, and mm-hmm. he, he, it was hard. And Though I know a lot of time. doctors who are also... Writers, that is true. I mean, that is true. But um, Elder Holland said it's the first part is the acts of Jesus, and the second are the acts of the apostles. And one thing that I love, that I find exciting, (laughs) that I find exciting about these two, these two parts of of the work of this one man, is he really was an appreciator of good stories. And mm-hmm. he tells the stories so well. And they are great reading, and they are great to teach the gospel with. Having many children, you always you want lessons that will jump off the page. And I think there are a lot of them in both um, Luke and in Acts. And the thing that I walk away with it, I, I, felt, I felt this increasingly as I, we've delved more and more into it, is the need to be more bold in declaring our testimony of Christ. That these men, like Peter, that's what I appreciate so much in your recognizing this evolution in Peter Nylon, that Peter came very much into his own here. And he, even under 
He may have denied the Savior thrice at the time of the crucifixion. Part of me feels like that may have been a little bit like some of the things that we know happen in the Book of Mormon where they have to kill somebody to get those um, plates, plates right. that Peter wanted to stay near the Savior and mm -hmm. he wanted to be there. And he also knew that he had been entrusted with the responsibility of carrying forth this gospel. And so that his denying may not have been so much denying as making a situational ethical choice to not say who he was at that moment. Because now, even though it's certainly dangerous, and he certainly puts himself in jeopardy over and over again, he boldly tells the stories he knows, which include the sacred history, which he presents in a way that first shows the story of Abraham and then and, and Abraham um, and how it leads to Christ. Right. And then later Moses. And now somehow reading it this time, I never so clearly understood why Moses was a type of Christ. But we see several of these apostles sharing the story of Moses and how he was rejected mm -hmm. over and over again. He was rejected like the Savior was, and yet it was upon him that the Lord was building his people and, and taking them out of bondage. Well, also as we look at Acts 1, I just want to, to bring a couple of points out. First of all, we have this understanding that after his passion, the Savior was here for 40 days helping the apostles and the church to kind of understand what they needed to do, you know, for to understand the leadership position that they were going to have, which I don't, you know, as we read basically the Gospels, we also gain this understanding of they really kind of didn't get it at that point. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden with the resurrection, you know, they they do have a change of heart and yeah. a change of understanding. I, I actually want to dwell on that for a minute because maybe this might be a good time to say that I'm I'm using a, a, a different translation. Yes, please explain. Um, yeah. This is called the new. This is called the New Testament. Um, a translation <laughs> for Latter Day Saints, and it's by BYU professor Thomas Wayman, and um, it's you know sold where LDS books are sold, and it's published by Coford, Greg Coford Books, but. Um, he, but Professor Wayment has done um, a translation where he um, he includes in the notes all of the cross-references to the Book of Mormon. So like where certain phrases of it appear in the Book of Mormon, and it's also a contemporary oh, yes. translation. So it's, mm -hmm. And so it's amazing because wonderful things stick out to you that you've been reading your whole life in the King James Version. But have new 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 sounds and 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 one of those for me was verse three of chapter mm -hmm. Acts chapter one verse three, and it's referring to Jesus and he says after his suffering he presented himself to them to be alive by many evidences, he was seen by them during a forty day period and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That I literally stopped in my tracks when I was reading that just as I was getting started because I was like. 40 days of training? Like, where is that story, right? <laughs> like, that would, that's, yeah, that's the ex explanation for Peter and for all of them. Like, man, if you... They're if, changed. They're changed. Saviors, right. tutelage for yes. 40 days. Yeah. We don't I, go from just the resurrection mm -hmm. to Peter being, being on his no, own. No, no, I mean, 40, 40 days of training. And so the they're reflecting mm -hmm. that. They're that's reflecting so that good. in this different tone yes. and in this different confidence, I think. I oh, yes. Yeah. Now, I have a little question to which I do not have an answer. 
But when I saw it was 40 days, this time somehow I noticed, especially the 40 days. Yeah. I thought, what's with the 40 days? 40 days in the wilderness. 40 days Jesus fasted. 40 days they were... What is with the number 40? Does 40 years in the wilderness. Yeah, 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness, mm -hmm. you know, with Moses. Mm -hmm. But Moses was also 40 years um, in Midian. Yes. In Midian, you know, when he, when he ran from from um, Egypt. And and then what is with that number 40? Does anybody know anything about it? I will research it if we don't. Well, and I think a lot of it has to do, sometimes they talk about 40 as being, meaning a long time, mm -hmm. and that it might not be exactly 40 days, but instead, you know, that that actually showing, just saying, okay, for a period of time, I love 40 it. days. You know, I love that. And I have <laughs> my oldest son, Michael, who you no, Nylon. Um, when he was little, we would ask him, ask him, I don't know what it was, but everything was $40. $40. Oh. And that meant it was a lot. A lot of money. <laughs> a lot. Well, a lot. So I mean, I always he'd gotten that He'd gotten that memo. <laughs> I assumed it was from Hebrew numerology. Mm -hmm. you know, I know. Like I seven or 12 right. or three or something. Yeah, I don't know the special. numerological. Yeah. I'll have to look into that. So the other thing that I want to just point out was also verse 11. When the Savior is, is going up and they are looking steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, and then two men in white apparel say, you know, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And the thought that came into my mind, too, was even from this point, right from that point, they're preparing the people for the second coming. Mm -hmm. That right there, they're saying, okay, he's going up, but he will come back. And the thought that came to my mind was something that actually President Eyring said at the last general conference, where he said, the rising generation will become the nurturers of the generation to follow. The Lord's kingdom on earth will be prepared and ready to greet him with shouts of Hosanna. There will be peace on earth. And as I read that and thinking this was President Eyring talking to our rising generation, how these men in white apparel are kind of saying the same thing to those that are standing around him, these disciples of Christ, that they too are supposed to help the rising generation to prepare the world for the second coming, which I thought was also a, a very interesting thought that I had never really thought about before. Yeah. Which is what they were doing. They were trying to do that. It's taking a lot longer. <laughs> well, and I know, Nyland... 40 years. Uh, 40 years. <laughs> 40 years. <laughs> that you were going to talk a little bit more about how Jesus Christ is still directing the church during this period of time. Yes, well, I do think that um, I'll, go, I'll reference a couple of... Um, one other thing, just as a preface to what... to one of the reasons that I really like this translation is that um, it breaks up the episodes into very small, bite-sized pieces, and it gives titles to each of them. Oh, so on every nice. page of this, there are at least two, sometimes four headings that kind of identify the stories. Because as you were saying earlier, Annette, Luke is an amazing editor, oh. right? He's not just a good writer. Not all of the gospel writers are great editors yeah. where they give us these Luke. I mean, there's a reason we recite Luke chapter two, right? It's a great story and verses one through 17 are a self-contained um, you yes. know, scene, right? Yes. And so Acts is very much like that as well. And so 
um, you see you see very discrete sort of stories, and within these stories, you can identify um, you know specific ways in which uh, the the apostles are responding to their knowledge of the Savior, right? And they're doing things specifically under His direction. So, of course, the first one that we get um, starting in verse twelve is choosing a new apostle, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And and because um, unfortunately, you know, one of them is. No longer, and um, and this is the this is the incident of Peter's first speech, uh, starting in verse fifteen. But then after his speech, uh, he well at the very end of his speech, he lays out the conditions for choosing a new apostle and for mm-hmm. for for um, you know joining their their fellowship essentially. Um, and he says in starting in verse twenty one. Um, one of the men who has walked with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the end of day that he was taken from us, one of them must become a witness of his resurrection with us. Um, and so that's the qual- that's the, the characteristic that they're looking for in apostles is somebody who's walked with them and walked with Jesus, but most importantly is a witness of his resurrection with us. It's so interesting because I read somewhere, why wasn't Paul, you know, just in the much reading you do, why wasn't Paul chosen as an apostle? Well, of course, it wouldn't have been, at this moment, he wouldn't have been available. Anyway, but it's interesting that they specifically did want someone Mm -hmm. who had been with Jesus and had witnessed him. And, and... it also indicates that the, the the group around Jesus was much larger than we often portray yes. it to be, yes. because there were several candidates of other people, mm-hmm. um, yes. and presumably, you know, um, there were several women there too, right? That were in the group, and we've got um, Mary Mary Magdalene and a couple of Mary Mary and Martha, and in, in that whole group too, who we referenced. But I think, you know, uh, Barsabbas and Matthias. Um, and poor Matthias, he just is too late to the game, and he doesn't really ever get mentioned as one of the apostles. But he is the first sort of apostle who's called after the death and resurrection, but it, this quali- he was qualified because he walked with Christ and was witness to his resurrection. So, um, And then and, and there are many other experiences uh, that bear witness of Christ as well in these early chapters. Of course, the next story to come in the beginning of chapter two is the day of Pentecost, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, you know, we know almost exclusively as a Christian event, but it actually the the cause of them being all together was actually for a Jewish celebration. Oh yes, yeah, Pentecost. which I didn't, yeah, which I didn't realize. So mm-hmm. it's kind of been appropriated by the Christians as as their day. But it, they were gathered for the first in the first place because of the festival of the weeks. It's yeah. called, and it is supposed to be five weeks after Pesach, after Passover. Yeah, and so that's the penta is like Pentagon mm-hmm. five Pentecost. It is about the fives, and it's always on the fifth. Sabbath after mm-hmm. um, after Passover, so yeah. that's it's interesting, and that's why Pentecost we think of it as a Christian celebration, but yeah. it's actually a Jewish celebration. Yeah, and I just I I loved recognizing that sort of symbiosis, of even continuing here between you know he uses a Jewish holiday or the Spirit uses a Jewish holiday to make basically the first entry into a global faith. Yes. And so it's an interesting That's juxtaposition, right? He's saying, okay, this holiday isn't just as a Jewish holiday anymore. I'm going to take this Jewish holiday and I'm going to use it to basically um, 
explode your definition of what it means to be one of my followers. And I'm going to do it by, you know, having you speak in all of these different languages, right. the languages of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elam Elamites, and the Mesopotamians, the Judeans, the Cappadocians, right? Okay. There's this whole list and here. And maybe many more, you know, because we just know that there exactly. are these people of all these different and it's areas. And we know that this is the essential challenge of the early church, is what's presented right there at the day of Pentecost, of how are you going to make sure that everybody's a witness of Christ, everybody will have been a witness to his resurrection and have a testimony of his divine mission, but you got to include everybody. Now, now, most of the people who were there, even though they spoke those different languages, were still Jews, because Jews had, were scattered and they were gathered. They Oftentimes they came from many places in the world to be in Jerusalem for Passover. Mm -hmm. This was an important thing. It was an event that, like, even... Even now, people like to go back to Israel to celebrate Passover. and But that is a beautiful insight into this juxtaposition of Pentecost, which we think of as a Christian holiday, but which we actually know is a Jewish holiday, and that day being the day when this great gift was showered down. I think it's also interesting. I do teach a world religions class, and I know... Both of us are very involved with other world religions, with some of the work, interfaith work that we do. And one of the things I think it's interesting with the Orthodox Christian churches, specifically in Europe and the Mediterranean, that they point to this as the source of their priesthood, where they'll say this day of Pentecost, you know, these people from all around the Mediterranean were there, and then it says how... Peter went and baptized them and, you know, gives them the Holy Ghost. And I'm sure the men were given the priesthood at that point. And then they go back home. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, this is where they say this is our priesthood line of authority. Oh, Similar to what the so Catholic Church says with Peter, Peter. going to Rome. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I, you know, I think that this does, even though these are Jews, but one thing that we will be talking about, especially in Acts, is this interesting symbiotic relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews that's going to be happening mm -hmm. in terms of the early Christian church and some tension because of that as well. So I know you were going to also talk um, about this idea of the apostles and how the apostles continue forward in the work of Christ. And aren't, well, we, aren't I, we thankful for apostles? <laughs> well, we are, and I love the... Um, um, I, I like understanding that apostle means to send out. That's, uh, you wouldn't have thought that because it, now we think of apostles as a follower, of, as an important member of Jesus's first church and, of course, in our church, the leaders of our church. Um, but apostle means to send out. And we certainly see in these chapters and acts, how they were sent out. They were sent out to suffer much and to preach with the power that they were given of the Holy Ghost, to preach, to heal, and to bring people unto Christ, but also to, to endure a lot personally. And I will say that as I was reading these acts of the apostles this time, I was thinking about our own apostles and the, the tireless work that they are called to do. We think of being an apostle as being a great honor and what a wonderful thing. The truth is, the older I get, the more I appreciate 
how tiring it must be, as I am sure it is wonderful, just like it was for the apostles in the meridian of time when they would go out and people would be so grateful to receive them, to receive the miracles, to receive the knowledge that they brought with them, to receive the enlightenment and direction. And I'm sure that that feeds our apostles and gives them strength. But it is not an easy mm -hmm. calling. It is a demanding calling. And I think, of course, right now of our beloved apostle, Elder Holland, who is, um, for whom I hope that everyone will pray and fast if possible. Um, they, many of them have endured serious physical ailments during the period of their apostleship. And they push past it, not to just get healed, but to continue to serve so assertively. And I am truly grateful that we have these people who have been endowed with particular power to speak for the Lord, who have been, as you noted, Nylon, gone through a process. And Elder Holland says that they go through the very same prayer and process. They don't do it by lots but they do pray together as to who the Lord has prepared for this new spot when they need to fill a place amongst the 12 apostles. And um, I just am grateful for apostles. I am grateful for this pattern that we see replicated in the Latter-day Restored Church of Jesus Christ. Oh, thank you. I, I What a strong and wonderful testimony of the power of apostles. I do want to kind of focus a little bit on the day of Pentecost. The interesting thing here, we kind of talked about how all of these people heard the gospel preached in their own language. And this idea of the mighty wind that came, which is a, a wonderful example of how sometimes we do have physical manifestations of spiritual manifestations, which also happens at the beginning of this. But one thing that I wanted to focus on a little bit is the power of the doctrine of Christ that is also found in this chapter. And that Peter, and I'm so glad you said that, Nylan, about how we see Peter really coming into his own as the president, the, the prophet of the church. And a matter of fact, if we look at verse 38, mm -hmm. uh, this is... I was a, just looking at that, yes. <laughs> and, you know, I would maybe love to have you read from, from your Bible there. Verse, is it in verses? Yes. So can you? Okay. So 38 and then 42, 43, and 44. I would love to hear the way that that... Yeah, so I've got, a, I've got a, a, a sort of heading here starting at verse 37 that says the first converts... Um, and you can read from that. Yeah, and it says, too. when they heard this, so the people that were listening to Peter's um, second sermon, so so they hear they hear all the tongues, um, they see the fiery fiery tongues, and then Peter kind of explains to them what has happened, starting in verse fourteen, um, and then in verse thirty seven we get the reaction of the crowd. He says. Uh, it says, when they heard this, they were troubled in heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what should we do? So, you know, they were troubled because they, in a good way, like they were they were spurred to action, right? And they were aware they wanted to of know the what fact they wanted to do. they had rejected yes. Jesus. You know, yes. maybe they individually hadn't been in that crowd, but mm -hmm. they understood. 
Yes, because and Peter just told them you had, oh, you yes. rejected yeah, him, right? <laughs> um, Peter answered them, saying, "Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." And um, this notes that this is the very first instance in the New Testament that it uses that phrase, the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then this note goes on to mention um, several times when it's mentioned in the Book of Mormon. And of course, we know the phrase from the Doctrine and Covenants where it's mentioned very frequently. But I mean, in that verse, you've got the four principles of the gospel right right, right. there, all of, the, all of the gospel contained in in Peter's first injunction to the first converts of what they should be doing. And I think it's also interesting in verse 42, he continues, because we talk about the four principles and ordinances of the gospel, but we also, in the doctrine of Christ, I'm thinking of the invitations that the missionaries, you know, that they recite every day just about on their mission. And the last one is endure to the end. And in verse 42, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon their soul. And this fear isn't like, I'm afraid. I was actually going to mention that because this this translation says reverent fear. And the note says, a Greek note only that fear, the Greek notes that only fear came upon them. But in this context, their fear is inspired through righteous action and following the apostles. So maybe that was Professor Wayman's Commentary, common way of sort of softening that 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 word in from the King James version. I love that reverent fear. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together, and had all things in common. And the thought that came to to my mind is that we have all five elements of the gospel of Christ that are talked about here. That that these people did become involved in, but then if you note in verse forty four. We also have them starting to take on temple covenants. You know, when we think of the law of consecration and what was happening after that. So not only did they do the doctrine of Christ, but they even went to the higher law of starting to live the law of consecration. And I did want to also make a comment. When we talk about these people who, and, and think how soon that must have been. I mean, we're talking the day of Pentecost after this horrific event, five of, weeks later. Oh, five, I never put that together. It, you know, that's yeah, yeah. that's it's presumably the same year. It's not right? like a year and five weeks later, right? Yeah. And so, I I think when we think about that and think about these people who would have rejected the Savior, who are now understanding the doctrine of Christ, mm-hmm. and isn't that? I mean, for me. That is just so powerful to think of new converts also coming to that realization. That's what we're seeing here is, you know, sometimes people have rejected the Savior Mm -hmm. before previously in their life. And yet, what does Peter say? Repent. You know, repent. I just am putting this together now. This is kind of like a Waters of Mormon scene. Like it has a lot of the same same echoes, right? Where you have this group of very diverse people who are coming together for the first time. They're not quite sure what they're doing there or what, well, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, like it's what's happening, what's happening. And, but yet, and yet they've got a powerful leader who has the fullness of the gospel and is teaching them about these same principles. And with such profound sincerity, they embrace these teachings. And yeah. that is what I think lifts them to want to practice the higher law. They want, they sell, I love, I mean, they say this, they say, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man 
had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, in the temple, mm -hmm. which is also very interesting. Yeah, they I didn't see too. any break with what they'd yeah. done. It was the fulfillment exactly. of what they'd been waiting for in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. You can imagine them, you know, that we'll make dinner tonight and we'll make dinner tonight. So, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So they that. really were one. Um, I am tempted, Nylon, to ask about the essays you've written about unity. Oh. Do they have any anything? Do you think they have anything to say to this? Because here we're talking about a profound experience of unity being experienced, mm -hmm. being manifest, not just felt, but manifest by these followers and recorded by Luke. And yeah. I know that that. You've written some interesting essays. I have. Well, I have. I have an essay in a in an upcoming book um, that's being published by Desert, Desert Book on the subject of unity, um, edited by uh, Richard Iyer. So, um, and I am the voice of the audio book. So, oh, uh, if you listen to it, that's, listen that's to my that voice. voice. But, but I think you know voice. that that um, Richard Iyer took the initiative to to collect these essays um, quite a while ago, and then we've been hearing. Uh, our leaders talk a lot about unity at recent conferences, um, and so you know I think it's definitely something that we're all we're all dwelling on. And for for me in in my essay in particular, and mine was a very personal essay. They're a lot longer and more erudite essays in the book than mine. But you I person. I talked about how in a lot of ways it was easier for me to feel solidarity with the members of the church when I was growing up in New York City than it is for me here now living in Utah. Because in New York City, there was an other. There was somebody that we were all pushing against. And we, even if it was kids living up in Harlem or kids living in Westchester or me in Manhattan, we were all very different, but we had this thing that brought us together, right? And I loved all the members of the church there um, because it was, a, it was a haven, right? Here living in Utah, unfortunately, I don't find myself being quite as charitable to the people who live on my street, you know, because we, we tend to think because of our geographic boundaries, um, you know, that because you live on the same street, you should all have things in common. You're going to the same ward, you're going to the same schools, you're living in same similar houses and the socioeconomic demographics, presumably, if you're living on the same street. And yet there's, it's a lot harder. I find it personally a lot harder to, to love all those people that you should be so similar to. Um, and I, don't, I just kind of, I think that's an interesting dynamic. Well, it's very interesting. And I think that it does invite us to ponder, you know, when, so when I joined the church, I lived in New Haven. We came from a large area, the people who actually came to church. And there's a, quite a variety of people in our ward. Um, and it's, I think it is easier sometimes to feel one which we are called to be, when we have other things that we're pushing back on, you know, in in our in this in society, when we when you're with a group that ostensibly shares the same foundation, then they're, you're more inclined to see the differences, exactly. you know, and and probably we are called to try to transcend that, because the truth is, and this is a story my mother once told me. I remember once I was with my mom. We were in a car. I know we were traveling somewhere abroad. And I, for me, it was a big dealio to have left my kids. My husband was at home with them. We were a lot going on. And um, 
my mother was talking to me. She and my father had visited with the king of Spain and his sister. And she was saying, oh, his poor sister, she has so many issues that she's dealing with right now. And I looked at her, and I could hardly roll my eyes back hard enough. You know, I, mean, I was just, you know, we were just trying to make everything work with all the kids, with the work, with the, and I thought, it must be pretty easy to be king, the sister of the king of Spain, you know that? Yeah. And I said something like that to my mother, and my mom looked at me, and she said, Annette, really, people all have problems. They may seem like different problems, but they aren't that different. And that really went to the, it really, touched me. I don't know that I understood it in that moment, but I never forgot it. And the more I grew, the more I came to understand that. And I think that it is important for us to be no respecter of persons. I you know, agree. And to look for the things that do bind us together rather than the things that separate us because there are many things that could. Well, and along with that, I, if we turn to Acts chapter 3, Kind of going back to the comment that um, Nyland talked about in terms of unity, we also see Peter also to these people that had denied the Savior. He's trying to bring them, you know, he's trying to unify them. And he says, and this is 3 verses 14 and 15, but ye denied the Holy One, the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And think that's, you know, Barabbas, you know, yes, we'll, we'll, you know, crucify him, meaning the just, but let go the murderer, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And I think this is pretty powerful statements that Peter is saying. And yet, if you look, he then goes, and now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And then it's the invitation. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So for me, that's also kind of this, uh, that we also have to have that feeling of forgiveness when we're dealing with people from a variety of backgrounds, that oftentimes they will have done things that we might find shocking or different compared to our lives. And yet Peter, in this beautiful way, is saying, look, I know what you did, but I know that it wasn't out of malice as much as ignorance. And instead, come and repent. You know, come and be a part of us, which for me is, you know, uh, amazing that so soon after... He would be giving that invitation. You know, I, I, I'm. You probably know this, but I, I never, cannot be touched by that knowledge that Bar Abba. You know, Abba means father or daddy mm-hmm. in Hebrew. Bar Abba means son of daddy, and that they chose liberation for all the sons of daddies. You know, that's all the people because we all had a father on this earth too, rather than the son of God, who through, through whom all of the sons of men would ultimately be liberated. You know, and I just think that, that I just think that's such a beautiful piece that I love to remind us of that piece, which as, as they tell this story over and over again, 
we understand that this was, and the Savior knew it was his destiny. Yeah. You know, one wants to be angry with those which you can't help. I mean, I can't read it without just that, the chapters, without my whole body just d dying inside. And yet, this was the plan. Right. And it was a plan that, that provided a path for repentance to well, all of us. Well, I loved the words of, of Elder Brent K. Natras from our last conference, where he said, to those who have strayed from the covenant path, and realize we talk about the old covenant and the new covenant. I mean, that's what the New Testament is. So oftentimes, these when we think of the old covenant, they had strayed from the old covenant oh, path totally. at this point <laughs> completely. Totally. I mean, yes. And then, but Elder Natras goes on to say, please know there is always hope. There is always healing, and there is always a way back. And I feel like that is what Peter is saying to the people there in Jerusalem. There is a way back. You know, you have definitely strayed from the covenant path. You know, this was the Messiah, and now is the invitation to come back. But I did want to ask you, Nyland, I know, I thought it was really interesting when you read that verse, how in here in our King James Version, it talks about these people being pricked, you know, at their hearts, and yet it's a it's a different translation in your version. What do you think that means? How do you think what that that which which verse is that? Would you remind me? It's it would be verse. It's um, thirty seven of two two thirty seven. Um, it says they were troubled in heart. That's right. Um, interesting. Let me see if there's a... Being pricked, you know, would hurt. You know, there, something poked them. You know, being pricked, what does it mean? It means to be stabbed a little bit in your heart. You well, know? and that's my question. How does stabbed that pricking that or stabbing help us to change? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, uh, they, as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, they were when they were troubled in, in heart, it's, it's because they actually are moved uh, or prodded into action, right? They're troubled because they feel that sort of sense of helplessness um, of, of what can, I, I know something now and it requires some kind of follow-up action, um, which is a natural and very, um, uh, you know, blessed, sacred state for those who gain a testimony. It, it, it naturally flows into action, right? So I think when, um, it, being pricked in heart seems like it's a very uh, active sort of thing. Like if you're, if if I poked you, you would respond, you, right? You want it, you want it's relief. a re re yeah. right react reactive. Yes. Um, and I think troubled too. We've all we've all been in that state where we read something on the news and you're like, what can I do about this? And um, it, I think it's a I think you know we're often told that that's the way the spirit works too. Mm -hmm it's going to bring something to your mind that you feel like you need to act on, and we're often encouraged to act on it. And I think that it is, as I love, Nyland, what that you, I really appreciate, that you, that you recognize that this is a part of a process, and that pricking of the heart is an important part. Think about just in your life, in relationships, when you feel a little stabbed in your heart, a little pricked in your heart because you don't feel things are right. Mm -hmm. Something is not mm -hmm. right, you know, right. as they say in Madeline, you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that something is not right and and you want to remedy it. And the and Peter offers them right. the a doctrine of Christ. For which right. thousands must have been pricked because they accept this remedy. They, do. And they are um now now 
you know, it is interesting that the that the more elite among them are less quick mm-hmm. to to accept the remedy and are feel threatened by this, you yeah. know, and that that is the same. That can often be the case. Uh, I will say one thing I often wrestle with with in the gospel generally is this idea of um, of action or what do I do as a result of something that I feel. I think we. In, in in the church, we talk about very macro sort of things, mm-hmm. like you get baptized, you make covenants in the temple, right? But those are not things that kind of keep you motivated day to day, right? And they don't really bring you ultimately, I mean, yes, they're big steps, but you have to keep getting closer. You have to, to the keep Lord. right. right. And so and then right. we then we have on the other extreme, we have the sort of micro examples of like, ooh, the spirit told me to call that person, right? Yeah. And you act on that. I often find myself craving communal things that we can do together um, that are that that act on social ills or um, just problems that we see as a community and and I think that in the Book of Mormon there's some really powerful examples of that. The Book of Mormon's equivalent, I think, of this phrase is um, softening of your mm-hmm. heart, right? The Book of Mormon talks a lot about mm-hmm. hard hearts and softening your hearts. And I th- the one, I think the best example of this is is um, the, the burying of the weapons, mm-hmm. right? Oh. Um, and yes. I just love that yes. example, because that's like, that's that's what I'm talking about, like oh. something communal. And I and I think they're getting to it here too, where they go and they sell. And in 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 this translation, it makes it very clear what you read earlier, Mariana, about them how that all these people are making bread for the apostles and taking right. care of their physical right. needs. I always just crave those sort of communal efforts where we all decide to do something together, where because we so, know we've all been pricked to action, mm-hmm. we've all been mm-hmm. troubled in our hearts oh, by the I, need to do something. Um, anyway, that's, that's something that, that I is crave so powerful. more. And we and and that we and we have to try to work towards that sometimes. And and maybe I don't. I don't think I don't like to use the pandemic as an excuse for things because for me there were many things I really appreciated being able to have a little more peace in my life during that period but I think that doing things collectively we we grew up I grew up in the gospel after being married which was the first time I was really not in a student ward I think in my life you know um because I joined when I was a student the church in our first ward, the ward that the ward that we spent the most time in, anyway, it was a very mixed multitude of people from all over, and there was a lot of need to work together to help one another. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just for social activity; it was serious work, and it did build a great sense of oneness. We were we were thinking about it because recently one of the members of our old ward, the Denver Second Ward, died, and. Many people came. People flew in from all over the country just to be there. And recently another person died. And again, we met together because people came. And and we realized there was a really wonderful experience in that word. And I think, Nylin, you put your finger on it, that we were coming together to do things to address real challenges that were being experienced by many people mm-hmm. in our ward and and it brought us very close together and it's a wonderful sensation yeah. and it's one we do crave i do think too this was a communal experience this day of pentecost oh, yes. 
was a day of, of communal, you know, coming together, understanding the pricking of the hearts. And yet, on the other hand, they were leaving to go out and to be by themselves, basically, as, as Christians and trying to take that feeling, you know, out into where they were going. I mean, they were from all over, as it's described here. But the thing that just struck me here was Elder Schmutz, Evan Schmutz, at the last conference, he did say something that was very interesting when we talk about the doctrine of Christ, because basically when they were asking, what should we do, you know, Peter then goes through the doctrine of Christ, and he says, if we are to accept President Nelson's invitation to have the doctrine of Christ rooted in the marrow of our bones, and I love that idea, then um, we must deepen our conversion to the Lord by study, prayer, faithful living, and communal repentance. Hmm. And I really loved communal repentance. repentance. And I kind of liked that that kind of you know study, prayer, faithful living, and you know, and well. I'm sorry, I read it wrong. It's continual. Oh, but you know I what? like the idea. Of but I, know, I really I like that. You know, that sounds yeah, like something that you know into my head. Yeah, and I, I did. but I'm kind of like I kind of like the idea of communal repentance because I was thinking there of Pentecost yeah. and that I, it was a communal repentance yeah. experience. Because right? what I'm getting at is that I, yes, sometimes I, I feel like following the covenant funny. path and doing these four ba- principles of the gospel and enduring to the end are very self-focused. You know, I mean, yes, we're always striving to to serve others, but but I do miss these kinds of communal experiences. Yeah, I, I love the idea of communal repentance. I think that it is relevant. As we, it's I a love, new thing. We've just it's a new thing. there we go <laughs> started yes, it. But I <laughs> I think that it is a legitimate idea within our wonderful church, where there are practices, and I am grateful that our leaders are willing now to be looking at our history honestly. It is, it is understandable that as the church was being built, they weren't always examining everything as carefully as they might have. It, it's a lot to bring. You, you know sometimes just when you have a family and things, you know, just to keep it all together, to keep it moving in the right direction, you, can't, you feel sometimes you can't pay attention to every little piece. I, I felt that periodically. Um, But I appreciate that we're going back over our history. We're looking at things. We're looking at things like the priesthood restriction. And the brethren are saying, guess what? As we look carefully, we don't see the revelation that made this God's word. It was a practice, but not... And I think that that's something for which communal repentance is probably important. Well, and I do think even given this last general conference, when President Nelson came up and gave that beautiful peacemaker talk, it was almost like he was inviting all of us as communal repentance Mm -hmm. to change in the way that we talk to people, the way we talk on social media, the way, you know, we also talk as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, that we're very careful about that. The way we think about others, the way we Mm -hmm. think about things. I have become, I think reading these made me very conscious of things that I never might say, but that sometimes I think and that aren't okay. You know, judgment in those ways, not okay. and, And I think that as much as we need to do it personally, we also 
can do it communally. I love that thought, Maria. Well, uh, that's going to be a new word, communal right. <laughs> I hope not. And we're quoting you. Um, <laughs> no. At, as we go to the en end of our reading this time in chapter four and chapter five, we do see some some interesting things that happen in terms of we see the apostles going through some similar experiences that Christ did as well in terms of them performing miracles. And then the Pharisees being a little bit like, wait a minute, we thought this miracle stuff was going away when, you know, this Jesus Christ was killed, and oh no, it's happening again. And so I I also thought this was really interesting. If we look in, in chapter four, it we have Peter who has just done a mighty miracle. And it was a very visual miracle that everybody knew and everybody saw. And so the, the people are basically Caiaphas, John, Alexander. These high priests would have been the same ones that also judged the Savior. And so they're now bringing Peter to them and saying, they arrested him and say, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And Peter is bold and he filled with the Holy Ghost. And he said, ye rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good day done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And I love the boldness. And so I did want to ask you, as I was reading this, I, I thought of a couple of things. First of all, this idea of boldness, but we also at the last conference had this interesting talk about poise. And I wanted to ask your thoughts and, and feelings, because we'll, we'll see this a lot in Acts, in that we see them infused with this boldness to proclaim, you know, Christ— is we also had this great talk by Elder Bragg about poise and what that means. Do you see the similarity between the two, or is is it different? I would, I would. It's something that I've been thinking a lot about since rereading that talk, and I was just wondering to to see what you thought. Well, um, one thing that I do think is is interesting about Peter's response right there is that he does what something that I mentioned early on. Uh, he does a lot in his, in all of his speeches here in early Acts, which is, uh, quote, the Hebrew Bible. And in this case, in verse 11, he quotes Psalms 118. But interestingly, he doesn't just evoke the, the, the Hebrew Bible. He actually personalizes that particular verse. So in verse, four, in verse 11, it says, uh, quoting Psalms 118, this is the stone which was rejected. Um, and in the original, uh, the verse says, this is the stone which was rejected by the builders. And here, Peter actually um, amends it a little bit to say, this is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, that has wow. become the cornerstone. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he's not just being bold by saying, I'm going to hearken back to the words of David and ancient prophets um, to tie their prophecies into what just happened five weeks ago. But I'm going to actually 
center it in this this group of people right here too and and it's a very accusatory i mean you can see why they get all riled up again right oh yeah and it's very they They are they are i mean they are the ones who are preserving yeah this faith um and then he and then peter ends by saying this is a verse that's quoted often and it's quoted many times in in the Book of Mormon and and, gospel, and Doctrine and Covenants as well. Verse 12, there is no salvation by anyone else, nor is there any name under heaven that has been given to men and women by which we can be saved. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, to, to your point, it's it's not just, he's not just presenting it with, with poise and confidence. It's it's very pointed, and he's he's actually has the sort of, temerity, uh, you know, to, to, to edit, uh, ancient scripture that they all would have known to be rather accusatory. Well, and Elder Bragg made the statement, and that's the reason why I really like this, was he said, knowing who we are and being true to our divine identity brings calm. An eternal view enables Christ-like poise. In addition to redeeming us from sin, the Savior can strengthen us in our weaknesses, fears, and challenges. And I think about this experience of Peter. Can you imagine having just seen the crucifixion of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and bring in front of these same people that just put him to death, you know, and yet there is no fear. You know, there's this boldness, this understanding of who he is. And, you know, going back to your original comment, you know, Peter has come to his own at this point, well, which is pretty amazing. I think at one level, I, that, I thought about that. They saw what happened to Jesus. They also saw what happened to Jesus. Jesus instructed <laughs> them for right. 40 days. That's right. They understand in a way that we all need to understand more fully how this life is just an experience. <laughs> it is not the end all and be all. It is important, but it is important to Peter. He knows what his his purpose here is, is to declare these truths. And that gives him enormous calm and poise, as it were, in the midst of what would be a terrifying situation. Because he's not terrified. No. He's, he's not, not terrified. We talk, you know, I mean, he is often bound in jails. He's and he's able to sing, he's able to rest, because right. he's not terrified because his eye is on the prize. Mm-hmm. And the prize is an eternal prize. And his responsibility now is to declare this knowledge for all mankind. And along with that, it's interesting that the people kind, of, people. kind of understand that in that they're like, well, what are we going to do? You know, all these people saw this very you know, open miracle. I mean, everybody was there. The whole, all of Jerusalem just about saw it or knows about it. Um, We can't put Peter to death right now. And so instead they threaten him and let him go. But of course, Peter doesn't stop. You know, Peter keeps on, the apostles keep on doing miracle after miracle after miracle. And then we have this interesting um, kind of segue with uh, Gamaliel. And I did want to bring this up because we are going to be talking about Paul pretty shortly and realize that that Paul was, you know, someone that had studied with Gamaliel. He he was this is this is the person that was his teacher. And so he was a doctor of the law 
and a, a very much reputed Pharisee. Respected. A, incredibly respected. And I just love to see his thoughts in terms of what, because they basically go to Gamaliel and say, so what should we do? You know, we're, we can't stop these people. They keep on having miracles. And their and evidence, the evidence of this guy that's Elder Holland talks about, this fellow who's just jumping up and down on his... Exactly, his he's so happy. Yeah. And he said, and they just can't get him to just stop, stop. jumping, you know. <laughs> he's so happy, yeah, and you I, don't blame him. It. So, um, but if we look at verse 38, 39, and 41... Um, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. What a powerful statement. And I think how interesting that this was the teacher of Paul. I, I did want to also bring up, you know, they departed from the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And I kind of wanted to end our discussion together today about this idea of becoming one in Christ, because we do have just before this in chapter five, the um, interesting story of Ananias and Sapphira, <laughs> but this idea that they are living the law of consecration. They are becoming one. And so I want to kind of open it up to your thoughts and feelings about, you know, we've already talked about unity, but what are some things that we can do to truly live the law of consecration? And I'm not saying just giving up everything that we have, but I'm saying strive for that spiritual unity and that spiritual consecration as well. I mean, I do think consecration requires sacrifice, right? I mean, it's kind of at the heart of that idea. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I think that that there are both very personal and communal things that we probably need to examine and be willing to give up. And being willing to do an honest examination of that is obviously the first step. You know, are there things that we do in our personal lives that cause harm to others or that cause fear in others or that drive away the spirit. Um, and, and then as a community, are there things that we hold on to um, uh, that, that are causing harm to our community? Are there, you know, it can be anything from, from ideals to possessions uh, that are, are causing harm to our community, you know, um, and, and for me, you know, uh, I'll give an example. I, you know, I've just decided that we're not going to use plastic as a family anymore. Totally impossible to do. Right. But I'm taking those baby steps. Um, it doesn't benefit me personally at all. In fact, it's a big pain. Right. But it seems like it's something I can do to consecrate myself to the future of the earth and to my responsibility for stewardship. Right. Um, and when you get into the flow of it, there's lots of support and there's a bigger community and there's lots of resources to make that possible. So I, I do think the law of consecration, you know, as, as with many things in the church these days, it's our responsibility to figure out what that is for us individually, for our families, for our broader communities, but always thinking about it in terms of, you know, am I, am I doing something selfishly that's 
taking away from the communal experience of others. And when can I put that aside? You know, I also wanted to ask you, Nylan, was there anything as you were reading in this other translation that we missed that you kind of go, oh, this was something that was a huge aha moment for me as you were reading through that? I was just curious if there was something that maybe we missed in that well, would be fun to share. Yeah, I I mean, I've shared a couple of them already, like that whole idea of the 40 days. I think mm-hmm. I think for me a lot of it comes down and I and I've read the um I read the Maxwell Institute. I I will put another plug for the Maxwell Institute's um, Book of Mormon as well because it it does the same thing even though the words are exactly the same um and um uh um uh Hardy Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his his ver- his edit editing of of the Book of Mormon. Even though ex- in the words are exactly the same in the Book of Mormon, um, the idea of having it broken into paragraphs and having the the section titles and having the notes it makes it a totally different reading experience. And with this version, um, it it actually goes a step further and changes some of the words. Mm-hmm. And so not only do you have different structure, you different you have paragraphs, you have the quotes being identified as quotes, you have the Old Testament verses being identified as Old Testament verses. So just the layout and the structure makes a huge difference in just personalizing the text and not feeling like it's quite so removed. But then there are word choices that are different because it is a different translation. And one of them, um, I think, was we talked about was the troubled in heart versus prick, being pricked in heart. Right. Um, another thing I noticed was just um, sometimes, for instance, um, because it's in contemporary language, it just kind of rings a little bit like more like kind of very present, pres- very present. For instance. Um, uh, you, I think in verse chapter 3, verse 15, the King James Version, you read this verse. It says, you killed the prince, prince of life. Prince of life. Y- yes. It's and and ye, ye killed, does it say ye killed? This says, you killed the author of life, mm-hmm. whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses to this. So sometimes just changing the ye to the you and, you know, just those little things. Like the author of life. Like, author of life is really powerful it's like you did this it's not some you know romantic shakespearean we right um anyway so i i think that's that's I have a my gen- general impression too, so um, i i don't want to end before i ask this question but mariana your your question is such an important one what we can do to feel more one but mm-hmm. i'm going to put on hold because i want to ask nylon about this i was so i was looking carefully at verses 19 through 21. In which in, chapter? In chapter 3, in oh. Acts, at which which are, this is how we read them, in, um, in the King James, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. I love the idea that, that it's not that they're blotted out in one fell swoop, mm-hmm. that they will be blotted out, the, the times of refreshing will come. It's a process of blotting out those things. But these times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And I'm wondering what he says. Oh, it's the exact same phrase in this, so that the times and of refreshing does may Does he come. have any discussion of it? Um, let's see. Refreshing describes the act of a cooling or refreshing breeze. Therefore, the times of refreshing refer to a moment of relief. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. That, I, I love that. And... And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, 
whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, mm -hmm. which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This is the times when all things are restored. So not restitution, but all things are. It builds upon a verb, which means to set up, establish, and build up. It refers to the full establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. And this verse is quoted in First Nephi chapter 3 and in Doctrine and Covenants uh, section 27. Which I think is important that certainly the restoration of the church is part of the restitution of all things. Mm -hmm. It is, it's not finished, but it is an important piece. It's, I, I remembered as I was reading them, I, when I was a senior in college, I wrote a large, long paper for me at that point on St. Francis of Assisi for a class on spiritual things. And I was in the stacks in the library looking for books on it, and I found a thin little book by a Matt about Joachim, Joachim of Biore, who was a saint who lived before St. Francis and who predicted that there would need to be a restoration. Oh, wow. I remember pulling this out and this little old book and reading this, and he said, things have been abandoned and lost in the church, and there will need to be a restoration of these mm. things. Of And he went through these things, you know, apostles and things, all these things. And, of course, people felt that St. Francis in their day was a bit of a restoration, you know, because he was calling people back to a more simple following of, of God. Um, but, you know, from where we stood, it was very interesting prophecy as well that is ongoing, I'm sure, but still we definitely feel part of that. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, as we come to a conclusion in our wonderful discussion today of these beginning chapters of Acts, I did want to just end with these last two verses of our reading, thinking about the apostles, but also that they, you know, they had been, the apostles had been beaten. They had had, you know, this awful experience, which we would think would be terrible, but instead, they departed rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. And daily they were in the temple and in every house. They ceased not to teach and preach of Christ. So I hope and pray that each one of us can have that same joyous feeling about our Savior Jesus Christ. That every day we seat for the temple and think about the temple and in our homes, we also rejoice in the name of Jesus Christ as we talk to our families and our friends. So thank you for rejoicing with me today. Thank, thank you, you, Mariana.